This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together. Hip hop, hip hop. Because we want to talk about y'all is hip hop. The stories of hip-hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. My name is Jose Olivares. I'm originally from Calumet City, Illinois, which is a suburb on the south side of Chicago. I am a poet, a writer, an essayist, an educator, and I'm a community builder. And now I work at the Dream Yard Project in the Bronx, where I help connect teaching artists to partner schools and uh, really open up pathways for kids to have quality arts educations in whatever genre they want in public high schools in the Bronx. This is me as a song off of Resurrection. Resurrection is one of the most beloved hip-hop albums of all time. And a lot of people know that album. Even if they don't know all of the songs, most everyone has heard I Used to Love Her. It's sort of the, the breakout single from that project. And while I have a lot of love for that song, none of those songs on that album hit me as hard as This Is Me, which is a song where Common, who at this point is working on his second album and is sort of trying to break into stardom, decides that while he could sort of become a gangster, you know what I mean, and he could try to fit that profile and he could change who he is, he ultimately decides on that song that that's not what he's about and that's not what he's going to be about. I see low, I see high, high see, I'm free at last. I'm a free man, free as world be. And like an early bird, I'm special. Wait, that's special. Is that a vesta? So to myself, I say congratulations. I'm glad you had the patience. You better have the patience. Cause this is me. Calumet City is a really poor suburb. You know, a lot of the people that I grew up with are working class people. And so because of that, the culture was a little bit tougher. You know what I mean? Everyone sort of had a, a posture of toughness, sort of ran through the school. It didn't matter if you were, you know, a goth kid. It didn't matter if you were on the football team. It didn't matter if you were an A student. You know what I mean? You still sort of had to have this posture of like, if anyone fucks with me, I will fuck you up. I ain't shoot nobody, I ain't shake nobody, I ain't kill nobody. It wasn't us, it was them. The warriors, I'm a warrior, still don't have to show gun. It takes one to know one, and no one can tell me how to be. 
I'm a man, I'm set. In my heart, really, that never resonated with who I was. You know what I mean? I felt a lot of love for the world, and I had a lot of love for my classmates, and I had a lot of love for everything. But I, I never really felt like I was allowed to show it until I heard Common say that. And then it occurred to me, like, trying to be gangster when I'm not would be, you know, not just disingenuous. It would be like cutting off a really important piece of who I am. He says, but I am a gangster, call me the gangster of love. He starts listing off people that he loves. So I heard that and I was like, word, I, all you guys are posturing like a gangster, but like I've been a gangster. I've been a gangster in the realest sense because I've been a gangster of love like Common is. And I would play back that part and just think about who I really was and who I really wanted to be and not so much who I felt that I needed to be. I probably would give up more if I was a gangster, but I am a gangster. Call me the gangster of love. I love my music. I love my mama. I love myself. I love you, and you love me. And this is I'm out. I love the way I do. You know, I want to say peace to my moms. At that point in time, the way I saw hip-hop when I was 16, 17 years old was there were two separate hip-hops, right? There was like mainstream hip-hop and that was all about the clothes and the money and the cars and all of that stuff. And then there was like this underground hip-hop that to me was truer. That's, you know, something that as a 17-year-old I would say. And so at, at 17, I was already sort of more on the underground, throwback, neo-soul hip-hop. And I was already listening to Most Def, and I was already listening to Talib Kweli and Lauryn Hill and all of these other people. What made that song in particular so important to me was that Common was from Chicago. We shared a common hometown. And so you can be from Chicago, you can love hip-hop, and you don't have to be a gangster. You can be whoever you are and still be cool and still be dope as an artist. My dad moved to the country from Mexico you know, in like the early 80s, and he spent a lot of his early years in California doing a bunch of migrant work. Sometimes he was a, a farmer, sometimes, you know, he spent some time working at a circus, doing a bunch of different things. And he would also, you know, run back to Mexico and see my mom, and then he would head back and find work in the States, back and forth. My dad moved to Chicago because he knew people from the same little barrio that he's from, Cañadas, Jalisco. He knew people that moved to Chicago and who had found work at the steel mill and who told him that they could get him a steady job working there if he moved to Chicago. I grew up in Calumet City, 
I moved there when I was five years old. At the time, my family was one of the first Mexican families that moved to Calumet City. If you were to look at me, you wouldn't necessarily assume that I was Mexican. I think I sort of present white in some ways. But when I was five, six years old and I was just starting school and I couldn't speak English at all, I was sort of very aware that I was not white in the ways that other people in my class were white. And I knew also that I wasn't black. And at the time that my family moved in to Calumet City, Calumet City starts to change from a mostly white suburb of Chicago and it starts becoming more Latino and more black. And so here I am, I'm situated in this class and I know that I'm not white and I'm not black and there are also not many other Mexican students for me to build community with. And so that to me has always had a huge impact on how I look at things because even though now I present white, I sort of always have maintained sort of an outsider perspective. Las mujeres de mi tierra son morenitas y güeras, preciosas como la flor. Y no son como cualquiera cuando te quieren de veras, te entregan la vida entera. The economy of Calumet City really rested on the steel mills. It was a steel mill town. And so as more ethnic people move into Calumet City, the steel mills start to close. And so it's just a time period where everything in Calumet City is sort of changing and in flux. I always grew up really observant because when you don't speak the native language, you sort of feel like if you start to talk, people are just going to make fun of you. So I would just sort of be very quiet, but I was always watching and I was always listening. And through that came to learn that as a Mexican family, my family had more in common with the struggles of the black families and the working class families. I started to get sort of this rudimentary idea of politics and race. And I didn't learn more about class until I went away from Calumet City because in Calumet City, class was sort of easy in a way. It was like, if your family could afford to buy you new shoes, you were doing pretty well. If your family could buy you the new video game system, you were doing pretty well. But there weren't at least easily identifiable wealth gaps like there would be later on for me when I went to Harvard and now suddenly I have classmates that are flying to Florida every weekend because they don't like the cold in Boston. Too many bottles of this wine we can't pronounce. Too many bowls of that green, no lucky charms. The maids come around too much. Parents ain't around enough. Too many joy rides in daddy's Jaguar. Too many white lies and white lines. Super rich kids with nothing but loose ends. Super rich kids with nothing but fake friends. Start my day up on the roof. I think that a lot of misconceptions around race happen because we happen to live in a very segregated society. And so, for example, I used to be a teaching artist for young Chicago authors. You know, we throw this big poetry slam called Louder Than a Bomb. One of the things that would happen 
is that you would hear poems from black kids about how black people needed to stop shooting each other, right? How black people needed to stop gangbanging or whatever. And so you would have that set of poems, but then you also had poems from white poets that were basically saying the same thing. I remember hearing a poem, you know, where the poet sort of shouted out a bunch of very mainstream hip-hop artists and said like what are you guys doing to help the black community it's this white kid from the suburbs saying this parents ain't around enough too many joy rides and daddy's jaguar too many white lies and white lines super rich kids with nothing white kids who don't grow up around people of color they turn on the news and all they see is more black-on-black black violence, you know what I mean? More Latino kids killing Latino kids. They don't have this understanding that those communities look a lot different than the communities that they are growing up in themselves. They believe that all things being equal, the only thing that's different with the students of color is that they're killing each other. They don't see that the communities that are of color also have less institutional resources, right? They have less access to, to educational opportunities or extracurricular opportunities. They don't see those differences in sort of social and educational capital that exists between themselves and the students of color. Purchasing crappy grands with half the hand of cash you handed. Panic and patch me up. Pappy done lashed us. Toying with raggy hands and mammy done had enough. Brash as fuck, reaching all these aqueducts. Don't believe us, treat us like we can't erupt. Yeah. We end our day up on the roof. And I think that the same thing happens on the other side. So I think that students of color growing up turn on the news and they see that it's more black-on-black -black violence, more Latino kids killing Latino kids. And they don't see how different it is, just how much resources you have if you're a student at Whitney Young, if you're a student at Walter Payton College Prep. They don't see that because they don't ever interact with white students to know that the white students have health insurance, the white students, all their books are brand new, all their schools are not being closed. All they see is the white students have it just as bad as we do. We live in the same city, but they're not killing each other. It's interesting to see how different people will sort of come to a similar conclusion because of how unaware they are of just how different their two circumstances are. So what you get is a lack of compassion and a lot of victim blaming. It's on people of color to really pull themselves up. How am I gonna pull myself up? If you're closing all the schools, you shut down the red line for the summer, you threaten to close the only hospital in Roseland. Like, what is there to pull myself up with? That also happens culturally. Hip-hop is probably the most visible youth culture on the planet. So because 
culture becomes then the only way that people get to see each other. You get sort of these exaggerated or misconstrued perceptions of what people are really like. I remember that I went through a phase where I was a Mexican kid who presents white, who had no idea what the young Mexican was supposed to be doing. And then all of a sudden, I start listening to groups like Cypress Hill. And so then I started thinking like, oh, I need to be dressing more like a cholo. And I'm in Calumet City, Illinois. You know what I mean? There are no cholos in Calumet City, Illinois. I would have like my collared shirt unbuttoned with like a little gold chain and like my Jesus piece. That's who I thought I needed to look like. I thought that's what it meant to look Mexican. I didn't know that I just was Mexican and everywhere I went, everything that I wore, that's how Mexicans look because I am Mexican. You know what I'm saying? And so it took a long time, especially when I was young, to really figure out that I didn't have to present in the way that I saw Mexicans present on TV. That I could be like, nah, that's just how they present. I'm still going to present and be whoever I want to be. So I got into poetry because I went to an assembly at my high school. And at the assembly, our high school poetry slam team performed. And it was a moving experience for me. I come from an immigrant background. I was always taught that my voice wasn't necessarily something that people were interested in hearing. So I didn't really place any value on my own stories or what I had gone through or, you know, what it was like to be raised as an immigrant. When I saw the students at my high school perform their poems, it felt as though for the first time ever, I had permission to tell my own stories. And so from that moment on, I started writing poems. At first, they were more rhymes because I really loved hip hop and then slowly started to work my way into a craft that was less about rhyming to stuff that I feel more confident saying now is, you know, solid poetry about what I actually experience and what I'm actually going through and thinking. School spirit for the Alpha step, omega step, kappa step, sigma step, gangsters walk, Pimps gon' talk, ooh, heck you know, that boy is raw. AKA Step, Delta Step, SGO Step, Zeta Step, Gangsters Rock. Pimps gon' talk, ooh, heck you know, that boy is raw. Alright, School Spirit is off of Kanye West's first album, College Dropout, which is my favorite album of all time. And I think it's my favorite album of all time because it came out I think I was a sophomore in high school, just at that crucial moment where I was really starting to solidify like who I was and, you know, my politics and my personality. All those things were sort of starting to harden a little bit. You know what I'm saying? That album continued to gain importance in my life because it then became the soundtrack to my college experience. When I entered high school, I went from not knowing what college was because no one in my family had ever gone to college to then 
being expected to go into college, to applying to Harvard University, to getting in, which was crazy and unexpected, to then going to Harvard University and expecting it to be this magical place where everyone was brilliant and working hard to like solve all of the world's problems, to being really disappointed because it was like a bunch of brilliant kids that were all working on their own things to benefit themselves. Not all of them. There were some really good people, but there was a lot of people that I was just like, you're here just because you're interested in getting rich. And so that album then became my soundtrack as I navigated Harvard and also experienced a whole bunch of crazy culture shock. You know what I mean? I was this poor kid. No one from my high school had ever attended Harvard. I just had no idea what I was getting into. I'ma get on this TV, mama. I'ma, I'ma put this down. I'ma make sure these light skins can never, ever, never come back in style. Told them I finished school and I started my own business. They say, oh, you graduated. No, I decided I was finished chasing y'all dreams and what you got planned. Now I spit it so hot, you got tan. Back to school and I hate it there, I hate it there. Everything I want, I gotta wait a year, I wait a year. This nigga graduated at the top of our class. I went to cheesecake, he was up for the mother, waited there. Told them I finished school and I started my own business. They say, oh, you graduated? No, I decided I was finished. That, like, little, you know, I think it's three bars or whatever. I would just play on the loop. I would just sit there and be like, yo, what am I doing here? I feel like I should leave. I feel like I should go and I should do what I really want to do instead of, like, take these classes and work towards this degree that I don't entirely know why I'm getting in the first place. Like I should be doing something that I love right now and I just sort of feel trapped. And so I would just play this song on repeat and imagine dropping out and imagine like what my life could be. And after like playing it maybe 10 or 15 times and someone, you know, a neighbor coming down and being like, uh, could you please turn that off? That's when I would like cut it off and be like, all right, I guess I'm gonna go do my homework now. <laughs> Step, Omega step, Kappa step, Sigma step, gangsters walk, pimps gon' talk, ooh, hecky now, that boy is raw. AKA step, Delta step, SGO step, Zeta step, gangsters walk, pimps gon' talk, ooh, hecky now, that boy is raw. I did end up finishing, I graduated in four years. I ended up staying at Harvard because a bunch of my friends at Harvard convinced me that it was the right thing to do. And then I would think about my parents, how hard they worked for me, and how excited they were for me to be at college and for me to be at Harvard. My mom had never even heard of Harvard. I remember the day I got the email telling me that I got into Harvard, I started like jumping up and down and yelling and yelling, and I was really happy. And my mom is just like, mijo why are you being so loud and i was like mom i got into harvard and my mom is like okay what's that she didn't know what it was and then it went from that to like people not believing my parents when they told them where i was going my dad like brought in a newspaper clipping that talked about me going to harvard and showed his friends and like i thought about how proud they were of me and how much i didn't want to disappoint them you know i also bought in, I guess, to sort of the rhetoric that as long as I got through it, as long as I got the degree, then all of these opportunities would open up to me and I'd be able to do more than if I, if I didn't stick it out. So ultimately, those were 
the reasons that I stayed and that I sort of drove myself to keep going. I'm nice right now, man. I, I feel good. If you have a drink, would you please put it in the air? Going to school at Harvard, that was really the first time since I was like a really little kid that I was in an environment where the majority of people were white and you knew that the majority of people were white. You couldn't get around that fact. You couldn't go to classes that were all people of color. There were no spaces that were people of color exclusive or anything like that where you could ever sort of hide from the fact that there was this white majority and that they were profoundly different from who I was and believed for the most part different things from what I believed and had had completely different experiences. It was very weird and confusing and for a long time I didn't get it. My senior year of college I studied abroad in Brazil. Now up until that point even though I present white and I started to understand, like, I don't have an accent anymore. I talk English as well as anyone or better than a good number of people, regardless of whether they're native-born Americans or not. I'm at the same school as people who are profoundly wealthy. And so even my class is different because I'm at this school. Even though at this point I do have these privileges, I don't necessarily understand it or make sense of it until I went on this trip to Brazil. Nego drama, entre o sucesso e a lama Dinheiro, problemas, invejas, luxo, fama Nego drama, cabelo crespo e a pele escura A ferida, a chaga, a procura da cura Nego drama, tenta ver e não vê nada I realized that overnight I have become white And in the United States, as a last resort, I could always be like, well, I'm not really white because I'm Mexican, you know what I mean? And Mexicans are discriminated against, and my mom is still not a full citizen, she can't vote, and so I'm not really white because people who are really white don't have that experience. But when I got to Brazil, it was like, well, everyone here is Latin. It's not like I could hide behind that. It's like sort of a last barrier between facing who I am. There are white Brazilians and I was in Brazil and I was presenting white and it didn't matter if I was Mexican or not because there are white Mexicans. In Brazil was really the first time where, where I really understood that, that you could be white and ethnic because in America, to be ethnic and Irish doesn't mean what it used to mean, right? Now when we think of ethnic, we tend to think of ethnic minorities that get discriminated against. But in Brazil, you could be white and ethnic and still be white, you know what I mean? You could be white and Mexican and still be part of the power structure. O dinheiro tira um homem da miséria, mas não pode arrancar de dentro dele a favela. São poucos que entram em campo para vencer. A alma guarda o que a mente tenta esquecer. Olha o trás. I realized a couple things. I realized that throughout college this had been true, but I had just sort of been fighting against it. I remember having fantasies of like covering my arms in tattoos because I wanted to manifest the difference that I felt in spirit, physically. All these white people who all of a sudden are like buddy-buddy with me, like I'm gonna get hella tattoos and just show them how different we are. 
or the fantasies of dropping out. That was another way that I think I was like trying to reject privilege and trying to reject the fact of who I was because I didn't know what to make of it. It was such a different position from the position that I was used to holding. In Brazil, the other thing that happened was that then I realized that I had been very, very fortunate and that I had experienced a lot of kindness and spirit from a lot of people who didn't necessarily have to show me that kindness. It was like when I went to Brazil and suddenly I was sort of unmasked in a way, I would go to like hip hop shows in Brazil and I would go to open mics in Brazil spaces that had always felt like home in the United States. And I remember feeling so alone because the people of color in Brazil didn't welcome me into their communities like that. I'm not dissing them because they worked very hard to maintain community. I understood that and, you know, I sort of realized how lucky I was to have been allowed into the communities that I was allowed to be a part of in the United States, to be able to go to open mics where the majority of people are of color and to be accepted with open arms. That's not something that people had to do. They didn't have to welcome me with open arms and, you know, I just really felt grateful and like I shouldn't take that for granted. Senhor de engenho, eu sei bem quem você é sozinho, você não aguenta sozinho, você não entra a pé, você disse que era bom e a sua vela ouviu. Lá também tem whisky, Red Bull, tênis, Nike, fuzil, admitou, seus carros é bonito, é, e eu não sei fazer internet, videocassete, os carros loucos, atrasado eu tô um pouco, se tô, eu acho, só que tem que, seu jogo é sujo e eu não me encaixo, eu sou problema de montão, de carnaval a carnaval, eu vim da selva, sou leão, sou demais pro seu quintal, to fast forward a few years, the latest thing that sort of has happened is George Zimmerman killing Trayvon Martin, which was a big moment in America, but I think also for white Latinos, because George Zimmerman is someone who was half Peruvian. And so I remember having all these conversations where some people were like, George Zimmerman wasn't even white. Like, why are people so mad? He wasn't even white. Confusion around George Zimmerman's identity. And so for me, that moment, I realized that white Latinos could become like the Irish, could sort of merge into the greater culture of white people in the United States. This is sort of like a real pivotal moment right now for white Latinos. James Baldwin used to have this idea that he talks about the price of the ticket. And he said that all of these ethnic white people that came to America became part of white American culture by committing acts of violence on black people. The price of the ticket, that was what they had to do to become white. I think in a lot of ways, George Zimmerman has paid the price of the ticket for white Latinos, right? You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is like, what does it mean to be a white Latino in this moment? And like, how can we reject simple assimilation into the white majority. One of the things that people like to talk about is how Latinos are going to be the majority in like 50 years or whatever, right? And talk about how that offers possibilities for a new world. Well, if Latinos are the majority, but half the Latinos are now identifying as white, all it is is white people who speak Spanish. If we really want to change the culture, then we, we have to reject that simple assimilation. And so then how does that happen? And how do we really pull together power? For me, that means just like a lot of questions and a lot of interrogations about 
the things that I choose to do and the spaces that I choose to occupy, being real intentional about how I ally myself with people and really trying to listen more than talking. Yo, microphone check, one, two, what is this? The five foot assassin with the roughneck business. I float like gravity, never had a cavity. Got more rhymes than the one that's got family. No need to sweat our seniors to gain some type of fame. No shame in my game, cause I always be the same. Styles upon styles upon styles is what I have. You wanna just fight for, but you still don't know the half. I sport new balance sneakers to avoid a narrow path. Messing right with this against the size of the I never have stuff, cause I'm not a half stepper. Drink a lot of soda, so they call me Dr. Pepper. Refuse to compete with BS competition. Your name is Specialist, so won't you suckle with the mission? I never walk the street, think it's all about me. Even though deep in my heart, it really could be. I just try my best to like go all out. Some might even uh, say, you're sure uh, you black, you're bugging uh, out. Uh, so the last song is Bugging Out by a tribe called Quest. Bugging Out is track two of a Low End Theory. Low End Theory is an album that I discovered right after graduating from high school and just immediately fell in love with it. And you know, I'm not entirely sure why, but the spirit of the record from like the jazziness of the beat, the back and forth between Fife and Q-Tip was just something that I loved. And, and so that summer, you know, this is as I'm preparing to go to college. I remember driving around with my homies and we would go to all these open mics and events throughout the city of Chicago. And I was always playing that album, you know what I mean? I had one of the tape deck converters so we could hook up our iPods to the tape deck and just play music through the car. And I would just have that album on repeat. And Bugging Out was one of the first songs that I memorized. I just really love that song. I love the spirit and the energy of that song. And when I listen to that song, it brings back that summer driving around in my 1989 Toyota Tercel. We would like pile into this car with no AC and like roll the windows down and get stuck in traffic and bake in this car. I just remember like how much I loved the city of Chicago in that moment, the people that were in the car with me and I, how much I loved poetry and just how good it felt, you know, riding around and listening to this song. I think that art is not just the craft of it, right, but that there's an element beyond craft that is sort of not quantifiable. There used to be like this popular shirt that people would wear, beats plus lyrics equals hip hop. I don't think that that's exactly true. I think that you need good beats and you need good lyrics, but I think beyond that, it has to grab you or move you. And not just hip hop, but this applies to all art. There has to be like an element of soul. It has to feel necessary or urgent, or it has to move you in some way. I think that's one of the reasons why some of the dudes that are, you know, quote unquote, the best rappers put out terrible albums. Fife and Q-Tip, I don't think are necessarily the best rappers, but when they made songs together, they, they had a lot of soul. There was like this element that for me really grabbed me. It wasn't just the beats and it wasn't just the raps or the content or what they were saying. It's just like the feeling that it gave me, that's what I look for in art. It felt right, it hit me the right way.
So I, I ended up joining my poetry slam team in high school. In my junior and senior year, we competed in Louder Than a Bomb, and the team that I was on won the Louder Than a Bomb Poetry Slam, which meant that my junior year, I traveled to San Francisco to compete in the National Youth Poetry Slam called Brave New Voices. And my senior year of high school, I went to New York City to compete in Brave New Voices. And those two moments were huge for me because I got to build community with other really incredible, dope writers from Chicago. And then see, it was beyond the Chicago thing. Here I was a 15 year old hiding poems because I didn't think that it was a manly thing to do. So now I was 17 sharing poems about love with a bunch of strangers and getting applauded for it. I went from thinking that I was this sort of solitary person, the only boy in the world who was 15 and writing poems to realizing that I was part of a community of people that were doing the same thing in Chicago, who were writing about the same issues that were important to me, who were taking it upon themselves to write different narratives of what it was like to grow up in the city of Chicago or to grow up in the suburbs of Chicago. It broadened my sense of self. So now I wasn't just thinking about me, but I was thinking about us. And then going to the Nationals was cool because now you understand it's not just a Chicago thing, but there's people all over the country and probably all over the world that are engaged in writing poetry that are really trying to tell their story as best as they can. As an artist, what I'm working on is a book of poems with one of my best friends, Ben Alfaro, who is from Detroit. And the book of poems that we're writing is called Home Court. And we're writing it together because we realized through conversation that we were sort of writing about a similar thing. And so on the surface, we were both writing poems that were about sports and violence and family. But underneath that, what we were really trying to get at was how boys become men and how masculinity and our ideas of masculinity impact how we grow up and how we behave as men. That means all of the problematic ways as well as some of the more beautiful and triumphant ways. Brotherhood is something that's been very important to me and I love my brothers and I love my friends and I love basketball because that's how I connect not just with some of my best friends, but also with my brothers. And at the same time, it's also true that the majority of rapes on the planet are committed by men. And so we are the biggest perpetrators of sexual violence on the planet. So how does that happen? And how come we don't talk about that? And how do young men grow up and learn, at least on a subliminal level, that rape and sexual violence towards women especially is okay. And so those, those are some of the issues and topics that we're tackling or trying to tackle in the book of poems that we're writing by just really investigating the way that we both grew up, the lessons that we learned when we were playing ball or when we were at recess, when we weren't in the classroom.
why hip hop matters is almost self-evident, you know what I mean? Because hip hop is, especially in America, is the predominant youth culture. It's like, how can the culture that all of the youth are connecting to, how could that not be important? Why hip hop matters to me is because hip hop gave me a culture and a set of values to really ground myself and my education in. The idea of like sampling. Sampling really comes from like listening and sort of taking in what you like and then putting together and putting things back together in a way that builds on whatever was there before, you know, completely rearranges it. That idea is something that is present in all avenues of my life. You know, I love reading and learning different things and I love taking the different things that I learn and then finding different ways to put them together to make sense of the world. Of course, the values of representation and like, it's not where you're from, but where you're at. And just really the idea that you can belong in a space if you're good enough. Hip hop gave me a core set of values and a culture that I could ground myself in that I didn't find anywhere else. Throughout my life, like the reason why I still scour the blogs looking for new music and looking for new artists is because hip-hop has remained sort of like a foundational text to me in the way that people who have specific religious beliefs return to their specific religious texts, return to, to the Quran or to the Bible or whatever. That's what hip-hop has been for me. And this is, I'm out.